testing the claim that pediatric weight management interventions decrease eating disorders. This is the Weight and Healthcare newsletter. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing and or sharing at weightandhealthcare.com. I think one of the more dangerous and disingenuous parts of the new American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines is their claim about eating disorders. These are claims that I'm hearing echoed in other spaces as well, so I wanted to write about them in depth. When it comes to eating disorders, they claim, in bold title case, that, quote, evidence-based pediatric, quote, obesity treatment reduces risks for disordered eating, unquote. Is this remotely true? Let's get into it. They begin by saying, quote, concerns have been raised as to whether diagnosis and treatment of, quote, obesity, editor's note, in the case of these guidelines starting at the age of two, may inadvertently place excess attention on eating habits, body shape, and body size, and lead to disordered eating patterns as children grow into adulthood, unquote. Well, let's examine the situation. They are diagnosing kids as having a disease based solely on their body size and shape, and then recommending intensive interventions and dangerous drugs and surgeries that put significant focus on food and food restriction with the goal of changing the child's body size and shape. There is nothing inadvertent about this. It's about as advertent as it can get. They go on to claim, quote, Cardell et al. refer to multiple studies that have demonstrated that, although, quote, obesity and self-guided dieting consistently place children at high risk for weight fluctuation and disordered eating patterns, participation in structured, supervised weight management programs decreases current and future eating disorder symptoms, including bulimic symptoms, emotional eating, binge eating, and drive for thinness up to six years after treatment, unquote. I'll get to the research they cite in a minute, but I want to point out that in their list of current and future eating disorder symptoms, they left out a few, including from the AAP's own 2016 paper on eating disorders prevention in adolescents, severe dietary restriction, skipping of meals, prolonged periods of starvation, and the use of self-induced vomiting, diet pills, or laxatives. Let's remember that even if their intensive behavioral therapy recommendations don't devolve into eating disorders and disordered eating, and they certainly could, their recommendations around pharmacotherapy and weight loss surgery literally induce all of these symptoms, sometimes for the rest of the child's life. It's pretty difficult to reduce eating disorder symptoms when you've created 100 pages of guidelines to literally recommend them. This reminds me of something the brilliant Deb Brigard says, which is that we prescribe to fat people what we diagnose and treat in thin people, and in this case, the people are children. Now, I don't know if those symptoms are left out accidentally because the authors are so ignorant about eating disorders and higher weight kids that they assume higher weight kids aren't susceptible to these potentially fatal symptoms, or if they left them out on purpose because they know that being honest about this renders their claims of their treatments decreasing eating disorder symptoms not just false, but patently ridiculous. Either way, the fact that they don't even mention these symptoms means that, at best, they don't have the expertise necessary to even talk about this, let alone create guidelines. Okay, so let's look at the research they cite to back up their claims that, quote, obesity treatment reduces risk for disordered eating. Forky et al., 2021, is the first study they cite. Now, given that this clinical report doesn't mention supervised weight management programs, eating disorders, or eating disorder symptoms, I would suggest that it does not support their claims. Something interesting that it does talk about is that higher weight children are, quote, more likely to experience discrimination, both overt and as a series of microaggressions, small slights, insults, or indignities, either intentional or unintentional, that accumulate over time, and that 
quote, the lifelong effects of toxic stress are statistically related to many adult illnesses, particularly those related to chronic inflammation and causes for early, early mortality, unquote. This is important because the authors of the AAP guidelines are ignoring it in order to uncritically assume that if higher weight kids have these health issues, then it is because of their weight, without mentioning that, as explained in a study that they themselves cited, it might not be their weight, but in fact, the weight stigma they experience that is the root. The next study is J. Bell et al., 2019, and we're getting warmer here. At least this study actually talks about, quote, obesity treatment. However, they do not examine eating disorder symptoms. They look at changes in depression and anxiety. They find that, quote, structured professionally run pediatric, quote, obesity treatment is not associated with an increased risk of depression or anxiety and may result in a mild reduction in symptoms, unquote. First, note the use of may result. Not exactly a clear conclusion. Beyond this, the studies offer follow-up between two weeks to 15 months. We know that weight regain typically starts around the 12-month mark, but the study fails to address or even consider what will happen to depression and anxiety symptoms during or after weight regain. I wonder if the study authors actually meant to cite a different study by the same authors, which actually looks at treatment of, quote, obesity with a dietary component and eating disorder risk in children and adolescents. I noticed right away that there was a letter written about the study by Louise Adams. I know Louise. I have been a guest on her podcast, All Fired Up, including recently with Fiona Willer to talk about the dangers of Wagovi and Saxenda. Her letter to the editor was behind a paywall. And while I could access it by paying, I knew that if I wrote about it, nobody else who wanted to read it could without paying. So I reached out to her and I got something even better. I received the full text of the letter she wrote, not the shortened version that they published. Here is the summary, the letter I will read in its entirety at the end of this piece. Her work is always spot on. I absolutely recommend you check out her website at untrapped.com. Here is Louise Adams' summary of the issues with this study. Quote, Given the errors and serious omissions in J. Bell et al.'s article, the findings and conclusions of this review are unreliable. I am concerned that the overarching message of this paper projects an air of certainty regarding the long-term safety and efficacy of adolescent weight loss interventions on ED risk that does not reflect adequate data and places children and adolescents at risk of harm. I am concerned that this paper will be used as evidence to justify ever more invasive weight loss trials and products in vulnerable adolescent populations. The author's conclusion that, quote, structured and professionally run, quote, obesity treatment leads to a reduction in the prevalence of ED, ED risk, and ED-related symptoms for most of the participants, unquote, is extraordinarily misguided given that A, quality long-term data were available for only 7.5% of the sample, and B, clear evidence of a subset of adolescents who developed ED symptoms was present in the longer-term studies. Moreover, the high numbers of missing data due to adolescents lost to follow-up is important to note and cannot be overlooked as a potential indicator of even higher risk, unquote. In our conversation, Louise pointed out that her concern that this study would be used to justify additional weight loss trials is exactly what happened here. She also mentioned that in the conflicts of interest section of her letter to the editor, the original study authors pushed for her to include, quote, the author discloses that in addition to practicing as a consultant clinical psychologist in private practice, she derives income from an online anti-diet program for adult chronic dieters, unquote. She points out that their zeal for conflict of interest disclosures did not extend to their own study. In fact, they claimed no conflicts of interest despite the fact that they worked at the Adolescent Obesity Clinic and that Bauer didn't disclose her role as president of the weight loss industry-funded World Obesity Federation. The last study they cite is Cardell et al. 2022. 
The short story about this study is that it reads like a bunch of diet industry shills trying to co-opt the language of weight-neutral health in order to obfuscate the plain fact that intentional weight loss is incompatible with eating disorders prevention and treatment so they can continue to market the same old failed, quote, interventions for, quote, obesity and dodge responsibility for all the harm they create. I did a deep dive into this paper in a separate uh, piece for weight and healthcare. The challenges in diagnosing eating disorders in the context of the treatments recommended in these guidelines are due to the fact that the behaviors recommended by these guidelines and created by the drugs and surgeries recommended are consistent with eating disorder symptoms. Another way to say this is that the same behaviors that are considered red flags for an eating disorder in thinner children are being recommended as, quote, healthcare for higher weight children bolstered by the claim that they will reduce eating disorder symptoms. I do not think that any of the research they cite comes close to supporting their claim that evidence-based pediatric, quote, obesity treatment reduces risks for disordered eating. In fact, I think significant research shows that if the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines are followed, they will create a generation of kids struggling with disordered eating and eating disorders starting as early as two years old. Compounding the issue, since by their own admission, the treatments recommended by the AAP guidelines almost never result in significant long-term weight loss, these kids will still be higher weight and thus have a more difficult time getting properly diagnosed with these life-threatening conditions, especially if their doctors read claims that the weight loss treatments these kids have survived supposedly prevent eating disorders. This will do the most harm to higher weight kids who are multiply marginalized and or under-resourced who, even if they can get a correct diagnosis, will have a very difficult time accessing treatment. Shame on the American Academy of Pediatrics for bending themselves and the data into pretzels to defend and recommend a dangerous and failed weight loss paradigm to children as young as two years old. All right, here is Louise Adams' full letter. Professor David York, Editor-in-Chief, Obesity Review, 444 West Willis, number 307, Detroit, Michigan, 48201. Dear Professor York, I am writing to bring to your attention my significant concerns about an article recently published in, quote, Obesity Reviews. J. Bell et al., please note that I send you this communication not with a view to being published in your journal, unless you believe this to be appropriate, I leave this decision to your discretion, but to ask that you consider the points I make below and consider retracting the article. This review sought to investigate the impact of obesity treatment with a dietary component on eating disorder prevalence, ED risk, and related symptoms in higher weight children and adolescents. The review analyzed 29 studies claiming data for 2,589 adolescents. The authors concluded that, quote, structured and professionally run obesity treatment was associated with reduced ED prevalence, ED risk, and symptoms. I have three main concerns about the quality of this paper. One, review methods two, follow-up period definitions, and three, omission of dietary restraint analysis. These concerns are detailed below. One, review methods, decision to run a meta-analysis. The fact that a meta-analysis was conducted rather than a narrative summary is troubling considering the heterogeneity of the studies included. The 29 studies involved interventions ranging from one week to 13 months. 11 of the studies had no follow-up period. Those with follow-ups varied considerably, ranging from 12 weeks to more than five years post-intervention. The intervention types and locations were vastly different, including inpatient and outpatient hospital programs, school-based health clinics, and even an intervention in which adolescents attended a Jenny Craig program. A systematic review of nine adolescent weight management interventions exploring the same subject, 
Edie Risk Factors by D. Giuseppe and colleagues, 2019, shared five papers in common with Jebel et al. However, D. Giuseppe et al. concluded that a meta-analysis was not possible due to the heterogeneity of the papers and instead conducted a narrative summary of the findings. I believe that Jebel et al. should also have conducted a narrative review due to the heterogeneity of the studies. Both Jebel et al. and De Giuseppe et al. conducted a quality assessment, albeit using different assessment tools. Jebel et al. used the U.S. Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Quality Criteria Checklist and rated 11 of their included papers as, quote, positive and 25 as, quote, neutral. The D. Giuseppe et al. study utilized the Effective Public Health Practice Project Quality Assessment Tool for quantitative studies. For four of the five studies in common, Jebel et al.'s quality ratings were higher than those assessed by Giuseppe et al. There is clear disagreement between these authors as to the quality of the same studies, with Jebel et al. consistently producing more positive assessments. Two, follow-up period definitions. Eighteen studies cited by Jebel et al. included follow-up periods. In their eligibility criteria, they stated that data at last follow-up was defined as a period in which there was no contact with study personnel and no intervention delivery. Given this definition, the paper should have consistently referred to follow-up periods from the end of interventions rather than baseline. However, throughout the paper and supplementary documents, Jebel et al. repeatedly provide data that reflect time periods from baseline, often without explicitly stating that the period cited was taken from baseline and did not reflect their given definition. An example of this is on page 4 under Prevalence of Diagnosed Eating Disorders where Jebel et al. stated that, quote, from 110 participants who completed the 24-month follow-up measures in the study by Brayett et al., this should have been reported as a 14-month follow-up. A further correction is needed in that Brayett et al. study only had data on ED measures for 89 participants, not 110. Another example of this type of error is the reported number of participants occurred in the reporting of the Debar et al. study, where they stated that the intervention had N is 100 in usual care and N equals 100 in the usual care control group, where in fact there were 90 in the intervention group and 83 in the control group. It is of concern that both of these errors overstated the number of participants in their data set. Defining the follow-up period in one way in the eligibility criteria and reporting it in another way throughout the paper had the impact of making the included studies follow-up periods appear longer than they actually were. It is critical that the correct follow-up period definition is adhered to, as Jebel et al. have used these claims that a strength of their meta-analysis was that it addresses concerns over longer-term ED risk with follow-up time points of up to six years from baseline, including seven studies that followed up uh, greater than two years. If we use the correct definition for follow-up periods as beginning from the end of the intervention period, only three, not seven, of the studies in their meta-analysis have a follow-up period of two years or longer, representing just 7.5% of the total sample. This low number certainly does not adequately address concerns over longer-term ED risk in adolescents and represents a weakness, not a strength, in this meta-analysis. Three, quality of the analysis of risk posed by adolescent weight loss interventions. Jebel et al.'s claims regarding the safety of adolescent weight loss interventions is at odds with the widely held view, supported by theories of the etiology of ED development, and a substantial body of longitudinal research which demonstrates that over time dieting is a major risk factor for both increased weight and increased risk of development of disordered eating in ED. In order to accurately assess the impact and potential harms of adolescent weight loss interventions, three conditions must be met. 
One, quality data that captures disordered eating, eating disorder symptomology for a period of at least two years, if not longer, after the diet intervention ends. This is because in childhood and adolescence, eating disorders can take considerable time to appear. Stice and Van Risen have identified a four-step pathway of eating disorder development, which demonstrated that eating disorder symptoms did not appear until, on average, 26.8 months after youths began dieting. The need for longer follow-up has been apparent for a considerable time. Over 20 years ago, Casper, 1996, discussed this need to improve research standards and recommended even longer minimum follow-up durations of four years. Two, ED instruments that have been developed and normed for higher weight adolescents. These measures should include an exploration of internalized weight stigma so that researchers can untangle the apparent positive impact of weight loss from the experience of a reduction in internalized and external weight bias. Unfortunately, such ED instruments do not yet exist. In the absence of such sensitive measures, quality studies must include follow-up data for ED measurements of some kind. 3. In order to determine the efficacy of weight loss interventions, best practice is to include a control group from the same population. It is even more important in youth since BMI algorithms include the speed of growth, not just height and weight, and weight loss and gain are being assessed in relation to other youth. So to answer the question of the impact of dieting, it is important to track the weight trajectories of larger-bodied adolescents who do not diet. Phenomena such as regression to the mean in higher weight adolescents and normal variations in growth spurts can impact significantly, and without control groups, the true impact of weight loss interventions on larger youths will remain unknown. Brown et al. have called for researchers to, quote, clearly and without reservation acknowledge the distinct possibility that return to mean could explain the improvements after intervention, unquote. None of the studies included in J. Bell et al.'s meta-analysis met all three of these requirements. None of the studies included a randomized control group with two-year post-intervention data. Only three studies met criteria for providing ED measures with a follow-up period after the intervention of two years or longer. Once dropout rates and the number of adolescents with complete ED data at follow-up are factored in, J. Bell et al.'s paper included quality data on 195 adolescents, just 7.5% of the sample. It is accurate to state that the meta-analysis revealed more about how much we do not know about the link between adolescent weight loss interventions and ED development, rather than claiming evidence of safety. I am concerned that the way this paper is written obscures the true message of the data. The author's conclusions do not mention the dearth of meaningful long-term data. Instead, the opposite message, one that suggested a degree of certainty, was conveyed. A closer examination of the three studies with longer-term data in ED is warranted. Brayett et al. conducted a three-armed intervention on 136 adolescents between 7 and 17 years. There was no control group. The intervention compared three conditions of a CBT-based, quote, healthy eating program. A follow-up was conducted 4.6 years after the intervention ended. ED data were available for only 53 of the original 136 participants, 39% of the sample. A large number of adolescents did not return for follow-up, and it is plausible that these youths may be experiencing negative impacts from the intervention. The authors called for, quote, caution in interpreting these data, unquote, given the large amount of missing data. Participant data for the Dutch Eating Behaviors Questionnaire was gathered at baseline and at follow-up. The results of the DEBQ showed a significant reduction in external eating, a significant increase in restrained eating, and no change in emotional eating.
Brayett et al. also administered the eating disorder inventory at the 4.6 year follow-up. These results revealed that girls scored higher than average on the drive for thinness subscale and boys scored significantly higher than average on the body dissatisfaction subscale. 9% of the sample had a score of 5 or more on the bulimia EDI subscale. Analyzing a subsample of 76 of the youths, one had been hospitalized in an eating disorder unit. In terms of weight reduction, the Brayett et al. study showed that mean percent weight was 5% at the outset and 42% at follow-up. Without a control group, it is not possible to interpret these results. Further, almost half of the subsample reported that they had continued to seek weight loss after the intervention ended. This would impact on ED measurements. If adolescents are still dieting, some ED symptoms, e.g. binge eating, may not be apparent. This does not mean, however, that they have not been harmed or that an ED will not develop in the future. It is important to note that other authors in the field have cited the Brayett et al. study as evidence for the emergence of ED symptoms after weight loss interventions. For instance, Goosens et al. make the following statement, quote, Results from a recent study demonstrate that despite initial improvements, post-treatment, and two-year follow-up, eating pathologies stagnated and even tended to increase in a subsample of youngsters at a three-year follow-up, unquote. It should further be noted that the description of Brayett et al.'s 2000 study presented in Table S2 in J. Bell et al.'s paper lists only the DEBQ and omits the EDI. Furthermore, the elevated bulimia subscale scores in Brayett et al.'s study were omitted in Section 361, Bulimia Symptoms, despite the obvious relevance. In fact, the Brayett et al. 2000 study is completely absent from this section, which is of concern. Jebel et al. state that, quote, two studies reported on participants with scores above a clinical cut point for bulimic symptoms, unquote. This should be corrected to say three studies and include an overview of Brayett et al. EDI data, including that girls scored higher than average on the drive for thinness scale, boys scored significantly higher than average on the body dissatisfaction subscale, 9% of the sample had scores above a clinical cutoff point for bulimia, and one participant had been hospitalized for an eating disorder. The study by Brayett et al. 2006 followed 150 adolescents through a 10-month inpatient weight loss program. Two years later, 110 youths provided weight data and eating disorder examination, EDE, data was collected for 86 participants at baseline and follow-up. This represents an absence of data from 43% of the sample. In terms of weight, the authors reported a 10% reduction in adjusted BMI, but without a control group, it is not possible to ascertain the actual impact of the weight loss intervention. Of note, 75% of the sample were reported to be regaining weight after the intervention, even though 78% reported that they were engaging in further weight loss attempts after the study period ended. The overall EDE scores were reported as reduced at the two-year follow-up mark, but detailed subscale data was not reported. The same sample was discussed in a 2009 paper by Goosens et al., where they reported increases in dietary restraint scores and further warned that, quote, in younger age groups, as was the case in this study, restraint attitudes have probably not yet reached their peak and, as a consequence, full-blown eating disorders are still hard to detect, unquote. The authors themselves are acknowledging that even a two-year follow-up is not enough time for ED symptoms to start showing in this population. The third study by Goosens et al., 2011, was conducted on a sample of 108 adolescents aged between 10 and 17. There was no control group. The intervention was a 10-month inpatient program, the same program reported in Brayett et al., 2006. The follow-up period was five years and two months after the intervention ended. Overall, 48% of the sample were lost to follow-up, and the authors obtained complete ED measures. 
child eating disorder examination and the EDI for 56 adolescents. No participants met criteria for binge eating disorder at baseline. However, at follow-up, 5.4% met BED criteria. 8.3% of youths who did not report objective binge eating at baseline reported objective binge eating at follow-up. 8.5% of youths who did not report subjective binge eating at baseline reported subjective binge eating at follow-up. Half of the adolescents who reported objective-based eating at baseline still reported objective binge eating at follow-up. In summary, the data for studies with follow-up periods of two years or longer show that from the initial pool of 394 youths, data on 195 were available, representing just 49.5 of the starting sample. Within this group, roughly 5-9% to are showing signs of disordered eating and increased risk for ED following weight loss interventions. Disordered eating symptoms arise over time and are easily erased when meta-analyses include no or short-term follow-up periods. It is imperative that any research in this area focuses on long-term outcomes, not allowing the shorter-term data to obscure the big picture. We must also keep in mind the fate of the large group of adolescents, in this case roughly half, who are lost to follow-up. The fate of these youths is too often overlooked, and it is plausible that many of these people end up with disordered eating and ED. 3. Omission of Dietary Restraint Analysis Jebel et al.'s paper does not include a section reporting the impact of adolescent weight loss interventions on dietary restraint, or DR, a glaring omission given this is a central precursor to and symptom of eating disorders. In the studies included in the review, ample data was collected for DR and warrants further analysis. The differing frames between the eating disorder literature, in which DR clearly features as a central symptom of EDs, and the, quote, obesity research literature, in which DR is viewed as desirable for larger-bodied people, is critically important to highlight. The treatment of, quote, obesity requires a practice that has been found to be a gateway to the development of eating disorders for people with eating disorders. For, quote, obesity researchers to omit any analysis of the impact of adolescent weight loss interventions on DR is a tacit admission that higher weight people should be prescribed what is diagnosed as disordered eating in thinner people. Many of the papers in the meta-analysis demonstrated increase in DR soon after the intervention. Several of the authors involved in these studies themselves raised the issue of dietary restraint as an important issue to study in adolescence, noting that it is important that the interventions do not make dietary restraint worse. For example, Brandt et al. 2000 note that, quote, we wanted to avoid the type of dietary restraint that has been linked to the development of eating disorders, unquote. In comparison, the Di Giuseppe et al. 2019 analysis discussed DR at length, noting conflicting results. Some studies found the interventions reduced DR, whilst others found they increased it. Regardless of whether DR is viewed as a precursor to both weight regain and the development of ED, or viewed as a necessary and potentially useful method of weight control for larger-sized adolescents, this topic needs to be analyzed, discussed, and argued, not ignored. Given the errors and serious omissions in Jebel et al.'s article, the findings and conclusions of this review are unreliable. I am concerned that the overarching message of this paper projects an air of certainty regarding the long-term safety and efficacy of adolescent weight loss interventions on ED risk that does not reflect adequate data and places children and adolescents at risk of harm. I am concerned that this paper will be used as evidence to justify ever more invasive weight loss trials and products in vulnerable adolescent populations.
The author's conclusion that structured and professionally run, quote, obesity treatment leads to a reduction in the prevalence of ED, ED risk, and ED-related symptoms for most participants is extraordinarily misguided given that A, quality long-term data were available for only 7.5% of the sample, and B, clear evidence of a subset of adolescents who developed ED symptoms was present in the longer-term studies. Moreover, the high numbers of missing data due to adolescents lost to follow-up is important to note and cannot be overlooked as a potential indicator of even higher risk. I respectfully request that this paper be considered for retraction. Thank you for considering my submission. I await your response. Yours sincerely, Louise Adams, clinical psychologist, Untrapped, Sydney, Australia. Did you find this post helpful? You can subscribe for free to get future posts delivered direct to your inbox or choose a paid subscription to support the newsletter and get special benefits. Go to weightandhealthcare.com and click subscribe.